0: Let us pray. Silence in us, O God, any voice but your own. And into that silence speak your word of grace and truth and light. For we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, beginning at the 12th verse of the fourth chapter. Let us hear God's word. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you have been ordained in the Presbyterian Church as an elder or a deacon or a minister any time since 1967, you are asked to make answer to this ordination question. Do you promise to further the peace, unity, and purity of the church? I've posed that question to others numerous times, and I've responded yes to it six times twice as an elder, four times as a minister. Think about those words peace, unity, purity. What do they mean? And what on earth can they mean when they're joined together in an ordination question? Some 16 years ago, when the Presbyterian Church was facing a significant crisis, the General Assembly established a task force. It was called the Theological Task Force on the Peace, Unity, and Purity of the Church, based, as you might guess, on our favorite ordination question of the day question was this could the church hold together could it hold together as it experienced deep conflict about the authority of the bible on the meaning of jesus christ and especially on our understanding of human sexuality it's a ridiculous question a colleague said how can you have purity clarity of opinion or thought, and unity, difference of opinion on that very thought for which you're seeking purity. And how can you do it peacefully and peaceably? Now it was not simply a theoretical question. People were leaving the church on one side or the other. Congregations were departing the denomination. They still are. Some people were choosing not to be ordained. Others were prevented from being ordained. I was privileged to serve on that theological task force. We worked hard, we studied, we listened, we prayed. Our final proposal made space for various perspectives. For some in the church, that form of compromise was helpful. For others in the church, especially one of our proposals that dealt with LGBTQ Presbyterians, any compromise at all, whether it was compromised on one side or the other, was simply and totally unacceptable. And in fact, some of us who were known to be ordination supporters were asked, how could we compromise? Well, it was not easy then. It was messy. It remains not easy and messy. It is never linear. Can peace and unity and purity coexist? It's not a theoret- theoretical question, and it's not a new question either. Some 50 years after the ministry of Jesus, The Apostle Paul wrote to one of the many churches popping up throughout the region, this one, the church in Corinth. Paul has heard of conflict, of infighting. The church wasn't very big, probably the church in Corinth, the whole community was no bigger than the number of us gathered in here in this sanctuary this morning. But the conflict was intense. It's centered, as church conflict often does, around leadership, power, charisma, who has authority. From a distance, the apostle wrote to them. Mary just shared words from the letter. Paul plays his own authority card here. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you should be in agreement and that there should be no divisions among you, but that you should be united in the same mind, in the same purpose. Then Paul goes on: It's been reported to me that there are quarrels among you. Some say I belong to Paul, some say I belong to Cephas, some say I belong to Apollos, some say I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul asks, no room for factions in Paul's church. Christ is not divided, only one object of allegiance. Now, we know such unity did not mean uniformity. In fact, in other places in the epistles, Paul encourages differences, dietary practices, or or the practice of circumcision. As long as differences did not create factions, they were acceptable. So far as Paul will continually demand, Christ is at the center, the very Christ who is not divided. Scott Hoese writes that unity is found in Christ alone and in the work he accomplished on the cross. Doug Hume writes that the congregation at Corinth was rich in ethnic and social diversity. It was composed of the population of one of the Roman Empire's major transportation transportation nodes. Paul's call to have the same mind and purpose is not asking individuals to relinquish their distinctive identities and vocations, Hume says. He does not seek to erase the diversity in the church of Corinth. Paul Bell and Boyer writes, Paul does not ask that the Corinthians be identical. They are simply to stop working against one another in their competitiveness and quarreling and their maintaining divisions in their fellowship. Instead, they are to work together by emulating Christ's radical upset of the world's power relationships. That was then. Is Christ divided now? Well, there are denominations too numerous to count. There are factions within denominations. Schism is not new. Brian Finlayson writes, The fractured state of Christianity reflects human weakness. It reflects our limitations to transcend history and culture. We fail to deal with problems in the church and so end up in schism. We cling to our racial identity, we preserve our culture. So we live with massive division. Can peace, unity and purity coexist? Why bother? Sometimes people ask me that, why bother? We respond so that our mission to a broken and fearful world can be strong, that they might know we are Christians by our love and not our schism. So we seek unity with those with whom we disagree, whether we disagree as we talk about Jesus or the Bible or human nature. We live with disagreement even as we hold fast to our core principles, It can be done. Paul Clendenin writes that even now, not all Christians distrust or demonize or fear or caricature or separate themselves from each other. In the church, we can also find voices of inclusion, embrace, toleration, even celebration. In the early drafts of the Gettysburg Address, The phrase, under God, was not included. Lincoln included it in his final spoken version. Lincoln never joined a church, but he attended Presbyterian congregations in Springfield and in Washington. And In fact, during his presidency, he developed a relationship with Phineas Gurley, what a great name, pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, Gurley wrote in his memoirs that in the latter days of his chastened and weary life, after the death of his son Willie and his visit to the battlefield at Gettysburg, Lincoln said to me with tears in his eyes that he had lost confidence in everything but God. Everything but God. In 1954, Gurley's successor, George Doherty, preached a Lincoln Day sermon at the New York Avenue Church with President Dwight Eisenhower, a recently baptized Presbyterian, in attendance. Something was missing from the Pledge of Allegiance, Doherty said, and soon thereafter, (coughs) Eisenhower advanced legislation to add the phrase under God to the Pledge. In fact, I got a text from several third churchers yesterday. They were sitting in Lincoln's pew at the New York Avenue Church yesterday. Think about those words. They're certainly more familiar to us than any ordination question. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Well, that may not be a very elegant transition from peace, unity, and purity in the church to the Pledge of Allegiance for our nation, but the connection seems real to me and apt and no less challenging and no less important. I'm not sure if you know this, but there was an inauguration on Friday. And there was a march yesterday or rather a series of marches and gatherings. And the existence of the two, just a day apart, represents deep division in our body politic. Very, very deep division. Just as the fabric of the church is frayed, so is the fabric of our democracy. Now where each of you stands as a citizen is based on your own sense of call and conscience. Where each of us stands as a people of faith and all of us together is perhaps one of the reasons we gather here on a Sunday morning. We Presbyterians have unique takes on these things. We insist that God is God of all of life. So that participation in civic life is not just recommended but essential as we live out our baptism. And we also insist that God alone is Lord of the conscience so that while it would be inappropriate for me or anyone else to suggest how to vote, it would also be inappropriate for me or anyone else to tell you not to march, not to gather, not to stand up, not to speak out. In whatever form it takes, act on your conscience as a matter of faith. We seek to be even imperfectly prophetic, not partisan. And at the same time, we have taken, this congregation and our denominational family stands on matters of importance. And never ever do they get a unanimous vote, but always they reflect division, disagreement sometimes even causing controversy or schism. Slavery was such an occasion. In fact, it caused a schism in our denomination or our stance on the Vietnam War. We have raised our voices or taken action based on conscience and calling, even when that has caused strain within the church that has mirrored the fractious nature of our cultural life. So it's clearer, just like in the beginning of the church's history, as is the life of this nation. We have lived with tension. We have been asked to navigate it. Peace, unity, and purity, for example, liberty and justice for all. The existence of all of that tension could easily lead us down two paths. These are paths we absolutely must avoid. The first is to say that tension does not mean that we avoid engagement. To avoid is to abdicate our role, both as citizens and people of faith. So when the parade comes by, we can't put our heads down and stare at the ground. We stand up, we speak out. But the other path we must avoid is the one that vilifies and demonizes the other. It is so easy to do. Our calling is a different one. Perhaps we might even speak with or listen to or understand those who might vote differently or believe differently than we do. What a gift that would be. Because our prophetic activity, the marching, the writing letters, the speaking out is fueled by love. Radical love that reflects God's radical love for us and for God's world. How we educate and how we organize and how we agitate matters, including how we treat those with whom we disagree. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote that the church is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state It must be the guide and critic of the state and never its tool. I believe that, so that we stand for what we believe, equality, justice, and we stand against other things, racism, sexism, transphobia, classism, xenophobia, religious intolerance. Stand for, or we stand against, but we stand, and we stand and march for all those who can't. We seek common ground where it may be found. In fact, we look hard for it, religiously and politically. We will pray for all of our elected leaders, including a new president, even as we speak truth to power with humility and integrity and clarity. That we do it is not the question. How we do it is our great opportunity, with courage, yes, but also with hope and also with love. And when things are difficult, and they will be, or unclear, and they will be, when allegiances come into conflict, and they will, we trust the Holy Spirit and we trust in the power of the community that is called church to help us in our navigation. Paul Bell and writes, in our daily lives, we constantly see real differences and divisions. All the current rhetoric about political division touches on the real fact that people have different opinions, beliefs, and interests. The markers of difference are part of our identity, he says, and many of these are pretty important. We will not give them up or set them aside lightly. Nor should we, I'd say. Nor should we. Our creeds, our secular and religious creeds, liberty and justice and tension, peace, unity and purity and some never-ending dance, call us to make choices as we live our lives. That we make these choices is crucial. That's why so many of you marched yesterday. How we make them matters as well, as we give witness to the core values of our faith. We know that peace and unity and purity are aspirational in the church at best. And indivisibility feels like a national dream in some distant, far off future. But we believe in a God of transformation who can make a way when there is no way. That is our hope. And that is why we march, seeking ever the light of God. Amen.